So in our church at this time, we're studying in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. And our sermon this evening will be from the book of Proverbs, a wonderful book in the Bible, filled with many pithy, relevant sayings to life in the 21st century. So we're reading from three chapters this evening as we continue our readings through the book of Proverbs, reading first of all in chapter 8, then chapter 17, and then chapter 27. Reading in in chapter 8, the first 11 verses of this chapter, let us hear God's word. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Then in chapter 17, uh, 10 verses uh, from this chapter. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Grandchildren are a crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Fine speech is not becoming to a fool, still less is false speech to a prince. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Whoever covers an offence seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Lastly, in chapter 27, uh, verses 1 to 10. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. One who is full loathes honey, But to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. 
Like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. This evening we want to come to think of another theme uh, from the the book of Proverbs. It's the theme of the home. And Andy keeps telling me how much he's enjoying these sermons in Proverbs. So uh, Andy, we'll carry on with this this theme here. Uh, And it's relevant to our service this evening, thinking of the home that Reuben's in and the home that that we're in uh, and the home that we're trying to make uh, for ourselves and for our families. And we're familiar with the important distinction between a house and a home, a distinction made by the U.S. novelist in his book. In fact, there was but one thing wrong with the Babbitt house. It was not a home. A home is more than, isn't it, and different from a house. On the occasion of losing his wife, the founder of the Salvation Army, General Booth, said, that he now had a house, but not a home. One proverb defines a home as where the heart is. And we can understand that as a place that we relax in, where our special possessions and memories are kept. Memorabilia from holidays, the memento from grandparents, the medal for go-karting, the poster, the porcelain ornament, the Persian rug, the flowered wallpaper. Robert Frost, as you know, identifies home as the place where, when you go there, they have to take you in, just as you are, with all your faults, your stresses, your hopes, your failings. So home is therefore more than the wooden rafters, isn't it? The brick walls, the slate roof the mahogany furnishings, the landscape garden, the barbecue patio. It is the community, the people, the love, the understanding, the forgiveness, the welcome, the appreciation, the support that is there within those four walls and under that roof. One of the great weaknesses of grand designs, if you watch that, fascinating, though it is sometimes, is that it focuses on the design of the building. The house, its architecture, its eco-friendliness, its cost, its views, but not on it being a home. We never see the couple or the family eating breakfast, sitting at the fire with a book, playing a board game, or cleaning the building together. We see the house, the stunning, the unique, the well-constructed house, but not the home. Mid pleasures and palaces, one writer says, though we may roam, be it never so humble, there's no place like home. Our home has, or should have, a richness that satisfies us something which the finest houses with stunning decor and breathtaking outlooks can never do. 
George Moore believed that a man travels the world over in search of what he needs and returns home to find it in his home. Perhaps you have traveled through Africa, through Europe, through America, through Asia. You have wanted adventure, fulfillment, beauty, but sometimes you found danger, loneliness, fear, disappointment, poverty. And you discovered that much of what you wanted, sought and craved for, you already had at home. After extensive travel, a person often settles down because travel to the Antarctic, to Africa, to South America, far from making them unsettled at home, results in a fresh appreciation of home. Thus, the condition of homelessness is tragic. Yes, missing out on shelter, on heat, on stability. But that's not the greatest tragedy. Far worse is missing out on unconditional love, a sense of belonging and acceptance. And so it's tragic for ourselves if we have a house But by our negligence or selfishness, we don't have a home. Are we destroying our family? Instead of love being there is hate. Instead of friendship is alienation. Instead of acceptance is constant criticism. And so we come this evening to hear from the Bible, from the book of Proverbs about what makes a good home. A godly home, a fruitful home. And if our home is like it is described here, let us continue that. And if our home is not like what is described here, then let us make it like that. We think firstly of the home generally. Reuben could remember these points. The home generally, and then secondly, the home specifically. Okay. First of all, the home generally. Proverbs contrast the home of the righteous and the home of the wicked in this proverb here, 14.11. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Here it considers the people who live in the house. And one of the things that is promised about the home of the godly, of the righteous, of the upright, of the believer is... That it will flourish. What a promise this is. A promise for us to memorize. To carry away from church this evening. Even the last part of it. The tent of the upright will flourish. Notice the words tent and house. They're used here to represent the home of two different types of people or families. It's more than the bricks or the canvas. It's the residents that are meant by these terms, the people inside. But what a gripping contrast is found in these two words, tent and house. Notice the the fantastic contrast that's here. Here's the house in the text. The house with its bricks, with its mortar, with its foundations, with its thick walls. It appears immovable. It's a house. 
It represents a wealthy, educated, powerful family. But the proverb states that the house will be destroyed. The strongest word in the Hebrew language is used here. It means overthrown. And sometimes that happens in this life. The wealthy fall from grace. Family fortunes take a downturn. Once the family were successful in the linen industry or the shoe industry, for example, but now it's fallen on hard times. Other times this proverb is fulfilled after this world. The person who's been wicked and sinful and a transgressor leaves this world honored and lamented. And if you have watched the dramatization of the life of Jimmy Savile, you will understand this point. His destruction didn't come in this life, but it comes after this life. The house, the home of the wicked will be destroyed. But by contrast is the tent, the flimsy tent, the thin canvas sheet, the flapping thing in the wind. Conditions in this tent are drafty, they are cramped, they are uncomfortable. If you're into camping, you'll understand exactly this proverb. There are few luxuries in that dwelling. But Jesus is loved and followed and trusted in that home. His laws are valued and obeyed. That family will flourish. It may be a financial flourishing, an educational flourishing. The principles of Jesus promote hard work and thirst for knowledge, but it is primarily in the qualities and graces which God approves. It is the flourishing of Christian character. Jesus gave a gripping illustration of this very proverb, you remember, describing the two builders of houses. One built on a rock, like Rock Mountain in the lead mines beside us here. The other built on the sand, like Helen's Bay, just down the road. The one was building their life on the principles and values and work of the Lord Jesus. The other was building their lives on what they valued and thought proper, appropriate, and right. And so we ask about our home, about our life as parents, as children. How are we living? There are consequences for us and our family by the way we live. We're not to judge from this proverb a family by the size of their house, the length of their drive, the development in which they live, or the number of their windows in their building. The true test is, are they upright? Which home would you want to belong to here? Which type of home do you belong to? What type of home and family are you building? A home where sin is laughed at? condoned or even encouraged where sin is openly or secretly practiced viewed or read every home has skeletons in the cupboard mistakes that only family members are privy to but this is not what has been referred to here in a godly home mistakes are confessed regretted and repented of before God and family members 
But the wickedness here is perpetual, willing, and open. Christian parents, hold on to this proverb. The tent of the upright will flourish. As you seek to promote uprightness in your home, that is, obedience to Jesus, trust in Jesus, your children will flourish. Your home is the main influence on the spiritual life of your children. What you do there influences them most. Your example, rules and encouragements. We value teachers and their work and their influence and example and input. But it's the home that's the primary influence on children. Christian graces will be evident in the home of the upright. One writer says the mind of Christ is to be learned in the family. Strength of character may be acquired at work, but beauty of character is learned at home. There the affections are trained. We use a greenhouse for young plants, tender plants, or some people do anyway. We don't throw them into the garden exposed to all types of weather when they're young and vulnerable. We protect them, give them special attention and care. And so with our children, the home is the environment to give special care for our children and to see them flourish. So then more is included in a flourishing home than kindness, friendliness, and support. It is uprightness, living before God in a way that pleases God. A telegraph pole should be upright. A tower should be upright. A gatepost should be upright. And so every member of the home should be upright, not leaning into sin, but straight before God. And this is an important point for us, isn't it? Because we're all hypocritical. We can be one thing in church and before others at school, but another thing in our home. But this is coming right into our home, where we live, what we are before our family. And when we are upright before them, we can claim this promise that our family will flourish. And so the key to the life of the family is not luxury. The righteousness of the home is not based primarily on riches. The piety of the home is greater than the possessions of the home. The tent of the upright even the lowest form of dwelling, if the occupants are pious, will flourish. None of us will be like Taylor Swift with our five luxury houses, but we have something far better, a family flourishing in Christian character. This flourishing is linked We'll see this evening to the promise of God to believing parents. I will be a God to you and to your children. 
so flourishes in the sense of conversion through the covenant of grace. We baptize Reuben this evening because God has said, I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. God has promised to be the God of the children of believers. Baptism will not make him a Christian, but it symbolizes the cleansing from sin which God can effect and the giving of the Holy Spirit into the life of this young boy. The Holy Spirit is often symbolized by water in the Bible. The upright have this promise. And when that happens, then the child will flourish in Christian graces, even from an early age. It was said of Jesus, whom we hope Reuben will, will come to know early in his life, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Alongside of the flourishing of Jesus' body was the developing of character in his life. Flourish then in our text is in the sense of the fruit of the Spirit being evidenced and developing in their lives. And this is everything that we want for our children, for our homes, that they will flourish in this sense. What Andy and Catherine want for James and for Ellie and for Reuben, more than academic success or financial security or marrying into influence, is to see our children flourishing in their spiritual lives in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. This is our desire for Reuben and our expectation for him and for every child of members of this congregation. The tent of the upright will flourish. But then secondly, we want to think of this home specifically of the parents and then of the children. How are the residents to live within this home? What does this uprightness that we've been talking about mean? How is it evident and worked out? Let's think of the, the parents. Uh, first of all, there's, there's two duties in relation to the parents. Firstly, providing. And secondly, training. Providing. 1914. House and wealth are inherited from fathers. James and Ellie, much and all as you love your little brother Reuben and, and you love him lots, his birth means that your inheritance has just been reduced from half to a third. And, and here it's in our text here. This is what parents are to pass on to their children, a house and wealth. Indeed, the Bible says that it is their duty to do so, 2 Corinthians 12, 14. The children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And it is the usual practice of parents to leave their estate, their inheritance, to their children. Where there's no will in place, the estate passes on to the children by law. But while riches are passed on, from one generation to the next, usually and lawfully. 
This text indicates that there are other things, other gifts from God, which he gives, not by descent, but by his special kindness and love. And one of these in the text is, a prudent wife is from the Lord. So we have this contrast between the wealth being passed on naturally and legally, but then we have God intervening in this special blessing. A prudent wife is from the Lord. Let us as parents, does a church family pray this treasure for our children? A spouse that will promote the uprightness of which we've been thinking, exhibit it, and instruct it in the home. Another treasure not inherited from our parents is salvation. Where riches are passed on from one generation to the next, spiritual riches are not passed on from one generation to the next. We all need that direct, supernatural work of God in our hearts to forgive us and to make us new people. However rich we may be, as rich as Bill Gates, only God can give us the spiritual riches of forgiveness and the hope of heaven. However poor you are, as poor as a church mouse, God can make you spiritually rich. I think this proverb is, is important for us, isn't it? As parents, I think it brings balance to the role of parents. As parents give instructions to their children and discipline their children as they get older and need cared for by their children. We have this balancing dimension that parents lay up wealth and an inheritance for their children. It helps children to know as they care for their parents, as they receive instruction for their parents, that they will help them buy a house if they can, help them pay their university fees. This is a, a biblical principle of the bank of dad and mom, not to be misused, of course, but it balances up th this other side of discipline and teaching and training. Children are not to think of this in a statistic way. I can't wait till they kick the bucket and I get my hands on their savings. But in an appreciative way, my parents are so wise, so kind, so hardworking that they not only provide for themselves, but also for their children. Maybe you're a parent and you can't keep your head above water with all the, the bills coming in upon you. The greatest wealth that you can pass on to your children is the riches of knowing the gospel and the word of God and seeing that gospel lived out in your home. That is true treasure for your children. So provision, first of all. Secondly, training. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not Depart from it. The word train means to dedicate. It means to continue a pattern of correction that will curb the hearts and foolishness of a child 
and allow them to grow in the ways of the Lord. When a child is young, she may depart from the way, but when she is old, she will not. There's a range of ways for us in which to train our children. One is by instruction. We do this formally and informally. Formally, we do this in family worship. We read and explain and apply the word of God to their daily lives. We do it informally by casual conversations about jobs, relationships, love for one another, and wealth. As our family sat in the Keys farm shop, I can recommend it there, just up, just up the road. We talked about a range of subjects on Friday. Careers, relationships, the place of money in our lives. We're training our children. We're instructing them in the way. In the history of the church, three main areas of instruction for children have been identified and promoted. The areas of faith and hope and love. And as Christian parents, we should focus on those three areas in teaching our children faith and hope and love. The teaching on faith could be done with the first 38 questions in our shorter catechism, a wonderful summary of faith. The teaching of love is connected to the Ten Commandments, our love for God and our love for our neighbor. And the teaching on hope is connected to the Lord's Prayer, bringing a request to God and hoping that he will answer those. We train our children by instructing them. And I encourage the parents of the church to focus on these three areas of instruction. Faith and hope and love. But training also involves encouragement and inducement and reward, as you know, within the school context or or within the, the sports context. We don't just tell people to do things or make them do things. We induce them to do things. Perhaps when you hear them praying in their rooms, comment on it. Perhaps when you see evidences of the fruit of the Spirit in their young lives, mention it. But the best means of training a child is by example. A child learns more by the eye than by the ear. Imitation is more powerful than memory. So as you're enthusiastic in singing, in your attendance at worship, in serving God, your children will also be. On the football pitch, Andy, you train your team not just by instruction, but you will show them how to take a free kick and place it in the top right-hand corner like Beckham. Catherine, at school, you you will write the letter F on the page for them to copy. Your example trains them effectively to learn and develop. And so, in our lives, we are to model, as Christian parents, faith and hope and love in our homes. Perhaps you have trained your child in the way, and they have gone astray. Hold on to this promise. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
as a church family. We're to pray for the training and education of our children, for Sabbath school teachers, for parents. William Penn lamented in his day that men were more careful of the breed of their horses and dogs than of their children. And if we modernize that, does it challenge us that we're more careful about our waistline, our brand of phone, our hair color, our make of car, our holiday destination than of our children? We can learn from our failings in the past or the failings of others in training us in the past and we can correct them in the present. Maybe our home or church did not major on faith and hope and love. Let us avoid those mistakes. Spurgeon gives the meaning of this proverb when he writes, train your child in the way in which you know you should have gone yourself. Let's be balanced in our training of children. Martin Luther, boys and girls, he promoted that not only should parents keep a a form of discipline, but they should also keep an apple as well. Alongside of the correction was to be the reward. If one method doesn't work, try a different approach. Deal with boys differently from girls. One child in a different way from another child. Yesterday, James, if you've got the kindness or interest to to listen to a former Chelsea player, an Arsenal player, Will what was talking incredibly insightfully about his manager at Fulham. And the, the, the interviewer was drawing out from him why the team had so progressed this year. And he put it down to the manager speaking to each player differently. At some players, he would roar and shout. At other players, he would whisper. Train up a child. And it might involve different methods of training the children in our family. And then lastly, children, what is our duty to our parents? Chapter 30, verse 17, a kind of dark but, but really challenging proverb. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. This is the uprightness of children in the home. And the recurring message of the book of Proverbs, and this is why it's so wonderful for our time, is that children are to listen to the wise advice of their parents. And this proverb warns of the consequences of not doing that. The raven will join with the vulture in picking out the eyes that despise the parents. It's a a metaphor for the shame and disaster that will come to those who mock their parents. No words of mockery are in this proverb. No actions are noted, but it's the eye that conveys the resentment in the heart of the child. Children that disrespect their parents will be shamed like Absalom was shamed. So let us keep this command of God in mind to honor our father 
and our mother. We can have discussions at the breakfast table about all kinds of things. One writer says, parents are the bones on which children sharpen their teeth. Don't be afraid of robust discussions at the dinner table. Encourage them, but in a respectful way. Here then is the secret for us of a good, a godly, a happy home. What a promise this is for all of us this evening. The home of the upright will flourish. And may God help parents and children in the different roles that we have within our homes.